0: Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Your new username is Michelangelo. I thought maybe he wrote his real name. No. Because it says Michael dot dot dot, but he didn't. Mm
1: -hmm. Michael
0: Metz. I've kept Michelangelo now for a little
1: bit. I'm glad I've always had a nickname. and No one knows my real name on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
2: How come I never got a nickname?
0: I think I thought it was funny for us two to have nicknames and you to have your full name. Not even Mike Metz, but Michael Metz. that's the only reason the intro says what it says or outro whatever that's
2: like the number one question that i get about the podcast
0: is why you don't have a nickname
2: is why i don't have a nickname
1: because it's funny uh, dude we could there's lots of nicknames we could call you braces don't um, do it. <laughs> four eyes i don't know yeah other other thoughts
2: no i've taken my glasses off since using the the little circle lights that we have here. Same.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you don't have your blue light glasses, Connor. I don't. Not today. I do have my beanie here. So I can try to look nice. hipster.
1: Nice. Is I it pretty know. cold up there in it's Chicago? Like Nineteen
0: degrees and windy. It is kind of cold. Holy cow! That's mm. really cold. Actually, the hipster thing is to have like a little bit of hair coming out the front. There you go.
1: Nice.
0: Does that
2: make the beanie still effective?
0: Yeah, as long as it covers your ears. I think it's yeah. it's a way I modulate the temperature. Cause like sometimes if you're if you're inside and you're wearing it like this low, it's too hot. So you just kinda like vent it a little bit and let your forehead go. Cool. Mm. It's kinda like cooling rods in a nuclear power plant. That's your forehead in a beanie. Yep. Right. Same mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, dude. Mm-hmm. You should have led with that. Speaking of power plants, I uh, I watched a YouTube video yesterday that I thought was interesting. Joe Pug um, does an email newsletter every month that really has nothing to do with his music. It's just stuff he found on the Internet that's interesting. Hmm. And um, we usually have a recipe in there, a YouTube video that's funny, a YouTube video that's interesting, an article or essay or something, a poem, curated Internet stuff, which I I care for that. And it was a video from 1951, a documentary on how to how they make pig iron through um, a blast furnace. And it's wow. first they do the kind of 50s diagram, like you see in the old action comics or something. That kind of aesthetic of art. Wait, what? What's pig iron? Pig iron is um, it's a kind of cast iron. I think it's it's the same um, level of metallic purity or whatever on its way to they use it as a uh, ingredient for steel but some uh, occasionally i think cast iron is made of pig iron Hmm. um i don't know why it's called pig iron actually but it was interesting how they layer in the the iron ore then the coke which is like superheated coal and then limestone and then the three they just like Get this thing super, super hot, the blast furnace, which is like stories high. And then it shoots out. It's kind of like a distillery, how it separates the things. Um, eventually, it, it just gets like this hot liquid iron s- shooting out of it. And there's the dude like helping it get out. I mean, the the proximity of men to pouring out flaming hot metal is Pretty crazy i I never really get that close to liquid metal in my career. same, much same. less for twelve hour shifts, so twelve hour shifts man whoa the the temperature has to be insane, yeah, they're wearing like uh they call it flame proof clothing or some super heavy clothing. Kind of look like when you go to the dentist and get your x-ray uh uh-huh. kind of heavy stuff. Probably no beanies in there, huh? No. Or blue light glasses. (coughs) Yeah. How do they look cool? Like to the other iron guys. (laughs) I don't know. You should ask them.
2: (laughs) They probably think about that a lot. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's playing with liquid metal.
0: But it's interesting too, because I had this conversation at our fishing trip over the summer of like how, if you were to go back to and did we talk about this on the cast? I think we did. If you were just to go back to nothing civilization-wise and you just had people. All the computers were gone, all the buildings were gone. You were just like in the woods. Uh we were thinking about that sh- that show Alone in the Arctic, which I think did you say you watched that, Mike? Mhm. Yeah. Like if you had to start civilization over again, how far could you get in a one person's lifetime or in a generation? And the question I had was how do you make metal? Like, I know that there's iron ore, but like if you were going to try to make a sword or knife or anything, how do you get out of the Stone Age? And that's, I think, isn't it the Bronze Age and then the Iron Age? Is that the order they go in? This is vintage.
1: Yeah, dude. I did. No
0: <laughs> vintage Three Dogs North. We carelessly selected this topic.
2: Yeah. I do not know. I I do know to answer that question. Well, it would depend on if we had a, a group of people there. Uh, but if it was just me, I could take a little bit before I died. And that's about as far as I would get. Take a little bit what? It would just, it would just be a little bit of time and then I would die. Yeah. Oh, right. And that was I, what I, my I'd cousin be said. <coughs> I most wouldn't advance would just to anything.
1: Right. I would just die. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you'd be lucky to make like a fire like one big, yeah, big
0: success with a uh what do you call that when you rub the sticks together um is it a a friction no you know a... what they you know how they did it in alone if they didn't have the flint and steel they'd make like a little thing where it it's mm-hmm. spun it's like a, it looks like a little mini bow and arrow that spins the thing yeah gosh Wow. we're really knocking it out of the park today looking at the three age system is the periodization of human prehistory. The Stone Age, the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. It's not even a copper age, dude. Yeah, like why is bronze before iron? Is that easier to make? I think of bronze as maybe it's just because of the Olympics. I think of it as a. A more precious metal. Isn't that precious? Well, I think I got we got good feedback from our uh episode last week. Megan Ulrich said it was particularly deep. Oh. Uh, Katie Dornboss and then your friend had texted you, Mike. So three people yeah. listened last week.
2: It's <laughs> a smashing It's just success. as many
0: people as record the podcast. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so I thought maybe we could um take a page out of John Carney's book and and go back and revisit and see if you had any thoughts.
2: Hmm.
1: Well, did, the, did, because it was, are you talking about like the distinction between expectation and desire? Mm hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I'm down to do that. Um, nothing immediately comes to mind. Is there anything that you wanted to directly rehash out? Dive back into?
0: No, I just thought, um, I I too left that conversation feeling like we had hit on something um, that I'd been thinking about and praying about for a while. And mm. the fact that it resonated with three people, um, none of whom are also priests, like just people in the world, moms and whatnot. Um, I, it made me think a lot about while we were talking, I thought a lot about people that in my life that I know who desire something deeply that's not being granted. And um, that was a helpful framework for me of, uh, it doesn't resolve the mystery, obviously, of like, how do you, how do you live in the tension of having a deep desire? uh, And yet knowing that you're not, you can't put expectations on that desire. You have to let it be free. You know, let God ultimately be free to do what he wills yeah and to ascend to his will um what what's helpful about that for you because it to me it it allows it to be an act of love rather than simply uh i think the temptation is like a a box ticking I i was talking to someone yesterday for instance and um they were saying that they were asking for me to pray for someone in their family who's dying uh, who has young children and is a close relative of theirs, and they were, they were crying, clearly, like, deeply affected and sad about this, but then kept coaching themselves, be like, it's okay, though. I know a lot of people are suffering, another, you know, have much worse fates and things like that, and, like, they, they were telling themselves, like, I'm not allowed to feel this, you know, or something, like, coaching themselves into mm-hmm. what Catholics are supposed to think when stuff like this happens, you know rather than just an authentic creed occur, living in the mystery of the suffering, um, and thereby opening it up to what God really is saying in this or doing in this situation. You know, it kind of, I don't know, it feels like it, the expectations when they're thwarted, if we live in that framework, we can bottle our desire up too much, you know? So it's very risky, to open up and actually want from God. Um, but I think it's, a, it's much more free and ultimately joyful,
1: although painful. Hmm. That's a lot of words, but that's kind of what I'm thinking. I think I thought about it um, continuing from, from the conversation. Um, and I don't think, remind me if we got into it in the last podcast, but I kind of thought about it in terms of just, how easy and I think how often we slip into what might be like the flip side. I don't even know, but where, um, you just kind of default to the repression of desire Mm -hmm. because it hasn't been like the expectation hasn't been met. And so there's that like natural inclination to just try to squash the desire. Um, mean, that's, that's what Buddhism kind of is at its core is the, you know, taking away of, of desire. um, And so I, I don't know, I framed the whole thing, like suffering in general. I don't think I've told you guys about this, but it's been a really like very real privilege um, to do this this past year. And um, yeah, there's uh, a few people I'm doing a little book club with that um, we're just reading through, I think it's called Making Sense Out of Suffering by Peter Kraft. And um, all the people that are, that are in it with me and just have like different scenarios, you know, in, in their life that like carry a certain heaviness and like sadness to them and, and trying to like integrate suffering and more kind of our goal at the outset was to, to learn how to think about suffering and engage like the intellect while reverencing the emotions as, Hmm. as well. And so we just took this book kind of as our guide and meet every week, every other week and take on a chapter and it's pretty free. Um, free flowing conversation and, and all that. But I, I don't know. I don't speak for them of, I don't know. That's been like earth shattering necessarily, but it's been a very real like privilege. I, I mean, I would say like one of the highlights of priesthood, honestly, to be able to engage it with them like that, just because it's very honest. Um, But that's how Crave starts that book is he actually talks about, he kind of lays out a very good synthesis of, um, I well, one the history of Buddhism, but just that whole notion of like repression of of desire and why so many people default to to that, especially in today's world. And then he just he takes such a cool approach to it of like he doesn't try to answer the problem of suffering, but he gives you clues from all kinds of different areas of life to be able to look at the the mystery and and to kind of put some clues on it that hopefully at least give you a foundation um, to assent to belief in it so he starts with uh the philosophers kind of walks you through um really kind of a short history of philosophy and then the art. his chapter on the on the artists and the poets is like just it's really phenomenal um and he uses this image of like they kind of draw you deeper out to see And then, um, like spoiler alert for anyone that hasn't read the book, but then like the prophets get the closest, but even they fall short, but it all like, it draws you deeper and deeper. And then like, it culminates in the person of Jesus who he calls the tears of God. So it's just like a really Mm. beautiful, I think, title for, for Jesus and an engagement of suffering. And so anyway, Mm. That was, um, so I, that was just kind of my thought anyway, after it, I think it's very much like, uh, filtered through that really cool book club that I'm in. Um, but it was just like, man, how often do we just like, just an act of survival almost like repressed desires there.
2: Yeah. And I, I appreciated in our initial conversation about the distinction between the two that Rob, you mentioned that like we we do have to take desire seriously, but like we've kind of mentioned already that it is a huge risk uh, in order to do that because there's a type of of hope that becomes enfleshed in the desire and to constantly have your desire not met or your desire uh, maybe fulfilled in different ways like it can be a painful, painful process. And Connor, your example is the last time. Um, I mean, specifically poignant, but like the expectant mother or the mother who, uh, can't, can't bear life and they really deeply desire to bear life. Um, like that's, it's a good example because it contextualizes the conversation in a way that like, this is not trivial. This is not a little thing. Like you, it has little ramifications in my own life. You know, I I go home and I have certain expectations and certain desires coupled with it, but then it also stacks up into like the deepest, most important parts of life and to really take those desires seriously and then be free to give away your expectation. That's not a small thing. That's like a really, really um, risky and courageous thing to do constantly. Um, and even like I noticed uh, kind of coming back and thinking about that conversation, even in prayer, uh, you know, going into a holy hour, I can even set up that um, this is my expectation of what I want to happen in prayer instead of allowing Christ to fulfill my desire in, in this prayer, um, where one is me aiming towards a specific end and the other is a as a disposition of, of receptivity. But when I sit in the desire rather than aiming towards my own expectation, like I have to sit there and wait and it's a huge risk. And sometimes nothing happens and that's just an hour in prayer. You know, that's like a, a little example, but then you play that out in some of like the high risk aspects of life that you're most hopeful for, that you most desire for life, family, Loved ones filling a home with people, like it's not talking about a little thing. There, it's talking about something really deep and important. Um, Yeah, but it's a risk. It's a risk.
1: Yeah, it's also just like deeply mysterious. Like you can't. The thing is, and I think why it's interesting to talk about, but also why, like you, you can't answer it you know i mean i i talked to someone um that had listened to it as as well and they had like great questions around around it and um it was like it was because they became then practical like and maybe maybe not necessarily like as like the certain um heaviness that came with uh like a mom that's lost a child or something like that but even like vocationally like how do i like do I take my desires seriously and then expect that they'll be like fulfilled in a certain way? Like, how does it work? Mm -hmm. And you have to just kind of like reverence the place. I mean, that's where like hope as a virtue comes in there. But yeah, man, like you can talk around it. You can get at it. I think you can have like, yeah, really powerful examples. And I mean, whatever it is, you can have a lot of like really good stuff around it, but you cannot answer it.
2: Mm -hmm. When when you say it, can, can you maybe flesh that out? What do you mean to answer it specifically?
1: What? I mean, I guess like the, um, yeah, man. It's like the mystery of suffering. I mean, the mystery of longing. I was going to say longing in the human mm-hmm. heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Of like kind of holding that tension of like letting your desires grow actually and be articulated and trying not to right get hung up on expectations. Like maybe that's it. I don't know how to do that. Right. No, yeah. I think it's the fact that it's the living in the human condition of
0: uh, being made for another plane of existence you know we're made for god and we live in the world which mediates his presence but isn't god and we're compromised by sin so even prior to sin we'd still have this longing in us that nothing that we could see or possess or manipulate or create on our own could ever answer we'd always have to look past this world to god who made the world as the answer to the question of our hearts and we live in that and we have this tendency to to make an idol to to um grasp at and create expectations create systems to kind of hem in and like guarantee that those desires are are met or repressed in such a way that i don't have to live with this pain of longing and unanswered need yeah. that requires me to hope and love in a way that's transcendent transcendent my own ego and myself and hopeful and trusting in another who provides for that um but yeah that i'm thinking of till we have faces which is this book that i read and voraciously but then it got to the end i'm like what the heck did that mean um and i listened to kreff's talk about it actually i think you sent that rob didn't you kreff has a great Mets initially gave it to
1: me, so I could have sent it. Yeah, it but phenomenal talk. I take credit for it. I don't it. think that Mets understood it, probably, so I'll say that it was for me. Yeah, you. he he texted me, and he was like, this is a waste of time. Don't listen to it. Yeah. Do not listen to this. <laughs> but he's, he helped make some
0: sense of it, and I think I get the impression <laughs> that that book gets at that question um, because it's through suffering that she... Is clarified to be able to speak her deepest desires mm-hmm. to the gods, yeah, that's and true. that's how she has a face. That's how she has an identity and mm-hmm. can see the gods face to face. Is because she has like been honest and entered into the consequences of her, her true longing or, or her own what Giosani calls elementary experience, like in the religious sense. She's not. It's not a meme. She's not just imitating other people and what they want and. She's not coaching herself to feel a certain way, um, but is honestly living out of the place and that, that, and she's babbling for a while until she gets to the heart of, uh, like who she is vis-a-vis God yeah. and can speak her deepest fears and joys and longings and desires at him in an expectant and hopeful way. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so be addressed. Um, but that's what I see is like, I think suffering has made me more myself and more confident that I can go into a a situation and not have to be a chameleon and figure out what am I supposed to say? Like, I don't know, just going bearing both of my grandparents. Now I go into wakes and funerals with a confidence that uh, I didn't have when I was 29 and hadn't done that.
1: Um, And an empathy, dude. Exactly. At least. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. um, It makes me think of the, have you guys, it was recent, like in the last week or two. But Andrew Garfield was on um, the Colbert Show, and I just saw the clip of it. And um, I still wish that it was Garfield that was in the uh, Silence, Silence movie, mm-hmm. right? Um, but he he has this interview. He's in a new Netflix musical movie. But apparently, I did not know this, but uh, Garfield's mom just passed away recently. And Colbert asked him about it like midway through the interview. And um, it was kind of cool to watch, honestly. Like he starts crying immediately when Colbert brings it up and uh, he pauses it. Like it takes him a second and he's like, hey, if I if I start crying, like just know that it's it's good because I love to talk about this. And um, it was really beautiful how how he handled it but he said at the end towards the end of their conversation about her and her influence and like making wanted to be an artist and all of this but he's like i i never want this grief to go away hmm. um and it, it like legitimately didn't seem like a burden i don't obviously speak for him it's a little little clip but um yeah it was a, it was a cool it was a cool thing um to To watch, but I mean, that's a, that's a heck of a line. Like, I I don't want this grief to go away. And he Mm. had, he had a pretty poetic way to say it was like unexpressed love for his mom. Yeah. he's like, I told my mom, I loved her every day, but like, we still don't have enough time with them. Mm -hmm. And so like these tears are just like unexpressed love for her. It's very masculine. I mean, it's like a guy weeping on national television. Like it was very, very masculine to see. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting, too. I I was asking a friend about this almost exact question the other day. Um, Like, how as a preacher do I sell people on loving when the more you love, the more you suffer? That's just almost like a mathematical truth that he suffering that grief means something to him because it's it reveals his love for his mom. Like that's. If he stopped feeling sad or sorrow about her death, that would mean he stopped loving or to some, some extent. That's how I read him saying that he wants to carry this with him, not because he wants to feel bad all the time. Correct. Correct. But because he loves his mom and he would never want to stop loving her, even if that meant escaping from having to, having to feel the pain of being alienated from her for a time until heaven, you know? which is what I think when I see like an a old person and th- we see this in old people that like, just like say whatever they want because they've got nothing to lose anymore. Like they've all their friends are dead and they're just waiting and they're not trying to impress anybody. You know, like they're totally themselves when it obviously when it goes well. Um, but that's, yeah, they've like packed all their bags and all their friends have already taken the voyage and they're just sitting there waiting. They're like, all my treasures over there. Um but there's there's still this sorrow, this sen- sadness, this tension. Um, yeah, you're. Were you going to ask the question, "How do you sell somebody on loving when it means more suffering?" Yeah, I, I guess I, I got to that point at some point pre- preparing a homily. I'm like, okay, so what do I actually want people to do here? Like, what what's the takeaway? And it was like, I want them to love God, and what happens when you do that is that you follow him and you suffer. Uh, and you of course enter into deeper, more life. And I guess the prosperity gospel is being, is, is less and less uh, persuasive to me and more and more. <laughs> yeah. I, and it so is. So it makes it like, okay, what the, the truth play. is, is like to engage with reality, both interior and exterior is to, Embrace this, which is that the only real meaning of, of human life can be love. It's the only thing that makes any sense of it. And yet the more you do that, the more you let go of yourself and your own expectations and enter into communion with the other, the more you make yourself vulnerable uh, to losing that person or to being hurt by that person or to simply be hurt by um, the nature of existence as we are in this world. Yeah, you know? man. People get sick and die.
1: Relate to that. I mean, I I had a wedding last weekend. Just awesome, awesome, super faithful young couple. And uh, so it was really a delight to celebrate the wedding. And they had uh, their first reading was Tobit. And um, I mean, really like the premise of kind of the meat of the homily was i was just like listen the one of the very very few guarantees that life will give you is that storms are coming because the the wedding reading for tobit is like it's really nice it, it talks about tobiah and sarah like praying on their wedding night so you read it and you're like oh man cool like couple praying together and you read the context of the book of Tobit, and it's like they're praying together because a demon is after them yeah. to kill them because like multiple husbands before have been killed and um <laughs> and so they just pray and like they ask god's mercy to come down on them so use that as like the image for the sacrament that they're like receiving and becoming of in in the sacrament of marriage of like no we're here today to like ask god's mercy down on you and to protect you and to be with you it's like that's a mysterious thing Mm. man it just reminds me one time
0: i was doing marriage prep with a couple it was the last one and they picked their readings and they picked that prayer of tobiah and sarah and i was like oh this is such a nice reading actually it's an interesting story you know this is why why they're praying this prayer and explain the whole thing with the demon and whatnot (laughs) both just looked at me like what (laughs) Wow. <laughs> i maybe next time i'm not going to explain that so this is a really sweet reading for your wedding glad you picked it
2: <laughs> yeah it makes me think of i had a super good question the uh why do i ask people why does god tell us to love more if it also means more suffering mm-hmm. and uh what also why is our why are our hearts geared to that like i'm willing to risk more suffering if it does mean i can love more like that's the andrew garfield thing Mm -hmm. there as a matter of fact i i don't want to give it away um i'm willing to bear it if it also means that love is present and um you know i I listen to a lot of peterson and one of the things that he talks about frequently is uh, the need to have responsibility so that you can have a meaningful life so that um the purpose and joy of life is sufficient to keep you moving forward and not be bitter, even when you encounter great suffering. And that's true, but I also, but it doesn't answer the question that it, it seems like the way that he presents it, it's like a checks and balances thing. It's like life is 90% hard, but if your life is 91% good, then like you've got a leg up. You know, so if you have more good than bad, then you can actually drive on with it. And I don't think that's how Jesus, that's not Jesus, um, that he does something different, that it's not either good or bad, like suffering or joy, but that he kind of comes and allows us to exist in the tension of the two in a new way, in a radically different way, um, that says like, no, even even in the suffering, there can be love where it's not either joy or suffering, but it's the possibility of joy in suffering. And I think that's like Christ, he presents that third way to us where, which, because you have to ask that question, like, maybe if that question doesn't come up in your preaching, then like, I'm not getting to the heart of the thing because it's true. What you're saying is, is true. That the more that you love, like the more you're being open also to, to the possibility of suffering, but we're created for love. And that's only possible to pursue if what we say about Jesus is real. Um, And I, I think that's part of the radicality of, of Christ that he opens up the possibility of simultaneously enduring great suffering, but bearing it in love um yeah it and it doesn't answer the question, but you know I think about jp2's um I think it was an encyclical but that this this transformative power Salvifici dolores i think is the saving suffering the the transformational power of of Christ in and through suffering um it's just a new way to exist it's It's like something so radically other that you couldn't come to that conclusion on your own, but that Christ had to come and kind of reveal that. Um, yeah, but again, it doesn't answer the question. It just means that it's possible. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it's still risky and it's still hard, you know, but it's also the most real thing cause that's where love resides. Um, I feel like I'm
0: kind of getting into like too abstract here and and too far away from what we're talking about. I think you're but. talking because we're both it's just, I there's something heavy here, dude. And when you said Jesus is the tears of God, that's a creep line. That there's something very true there. That hits me deep for some reason. Um mm. Yeah, these are these are these are the questions college students ask. That was an EWTN show that we recorded when I was at Newman and Champaign. These are the ones they ask. No, this is the ones they don't ask, but it's behind every question. It's exactly.
1: like, what is, what's really going on here? Exactly. Dude, I, this, uh, this Crafe book, Making Sense Out of Suffering, high recommend.
2: Hmm.
1: He, he's good. He writes, he writes a bunch of it in dialogue with her. He just calls it like reader and he just he's he's good like he helps you formulate questions that are even harder than the ones that you had at the beginning yeah dang it yeah i mean it's um
0: chesterton or ratzinger then they argue their their opponents point better than their opponent does
1: yeah i mean his first like couple chapters he he goes to the problem like the notion of like the problem of pain and then he goes to explore the problem deeper just because like you're not asking hard enough questions at the beginning.
0: Right. That that's I guess what I was the question with the preaching is like, um, I don't I don't want to sometimes just like people need advice and like, here's some spiritual platitudes here. This will help you. You know, here's some catechesis. This is like an answer to your question apologetically. But I I, also, I don't just want my preaching to be on that level. Like what's the, I, I, I'm not afraid. I'm not like, I'm not answering questions so that the questions go away. Or at least I don't want to. I, I don't think you should like wh- what you're talking about with Kraft, It seems to me like he's saying, good, you have a question. Okay. Like what's the r- actual question, you know? And he courageously goes, at pursues the question. So that you can get an authentic answer, or at least not reduce it to some shortcut answer that doesn't mm-hmm. really satisfy and papers over the, the deeper longing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which that takes a a lot of faith and a very
1: honest, like integrity. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and <clears throat> yeah, there's a lot of integrity in the book, like in the, in the dialogues at the beginning you know, the, the quote unquote reader ask him like, well, if you're not going to answer the question, cause he says he's just going to present clues and, um, and I can't remember exactly how he words it, but pretty much asked asking Kreeft, like, well, if you're not going to answer it, like, um, you know, why, why go on this endeavor? And he says, like, because I have found enough clues to live by. Hmm. And I mean it's a be- it's a beautiful book. That is
2: definitely a Till We Have It's definitely connected Till We Have Faces. Oh There's, yeah, for sure. He talks
1: about Lewis all the time in it. Yeah. It's like he, it's literally Lewis and Dostoevsky are the two that have like explored <clears throat> the deepest in his mind. He does seem to be a great teacher
2: of Lewis. Like mm-hmm. man oh man. In in that talk that he gives on Till We Have Faces trying to help us understand it. I think he says he's read the book 12 times. Mm-hmm. And, 12 times. Uh, and he seems to uh, like play with language and see the world in a similar way as Lewis, uh, which it makes sense why he can give such fresh and fruitful commentary on Lewis's works. Uh, mm-hmm. Cause he, he really does know him. And uh, I, I remember in it, I think it was that talk that followed up till we have faces that he he actually talks about what the human heart is, is looking for there. It's actually not an answer to the question. And he references back to the book of Job where Job asks God a question and he kind of calls God to task and God doesn't answer any of Job's questions, but comes in and kind of makes us like really authoritative. What would seem to like our modern ears and, and hearts, How dare like, you. kind of a, harsh response mm-hmm. you know almost like uh just to putting him down and but he doesn't answer any of his questions um and kreeft uses that as an example and says like be, because if god answered his question job would just have another question mm-hmm. and, and that's part of like that's like the little kid instinct right. well why is that well why is that well why is that and what's fleshed out until we have faces in narrative form is the only thing that actually satisfies the human heart which is
0: uh, it's a
2: face mm-hmm. it's a face yeah that's
0: kind of like philip or thomas saying like how are we going to go where you're going if we don't know the way i am the way mm-hmm. the truth and the life right you know the job I, I'm not gonna, implication yeah. with job is like if i if i were to address your questions that would be to entertain the fantasy that what you're after is a question is the answer to a question and not me What you're after is me, that I am the answer. And practically speaking, the question right now for you is why does this suck? If you love me and there's no answer that I can give you because you're just not, you're not the kind of being that can see, like I made this beast Leviathan. Okay. That's an example, like I'm big and you're not, and I love you and it's okay. And I am the answer.
1: Yeah. The tears of and,
2: God.
0: Right. And a part of what you see until we have faces, and
2: maybe this gets to like the expectation desire thing is it's, you also have to ask the questions. Yeah. Like you have to respect the experience that you're going through as well. Doesn't mean that God's going to answer the right. questions, but you have to go through that process. That is the human process. And it's like, it's a way to respect reverence and honor our humanity uh which then christ eventually he does answer with with himself which is a a surprising way to answer it but it's like you can't just coach yourself out of asking the questions yeah but you have to do the grief thing which is why you have to have a good guide that can actually lead you into asking those deeper questions and then you, you can have a face and see the face of God,
1: which is the real answer. Do you know who the the person that wrote the foreword to this book by Kreeft is? Is uh, Sheldon Vinakian, who wrote A Severe Mercy.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: And he it's a, even the foreword's worth it, man. He talks about, um, and keep in mind, Kreeft wrote this book like in the 80s. And Sh- Sheldon just, he goes at, he's like, the world has way too many experts. And like, isn't it interesting how often experts disagree with each other? And he's like, so we don't need more experts. We need guides, like actual wisdom figures. Hmm. And that's what Crave tries to do.
2: Hmm.
1: Or Lewis.
0: Yeah. Do the creef thing. Da, 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 da. That's what I thought of when you said we needed to do the creef thing. That should be a dance. Good I don't point. know what that
2: means. I don't know what that means, Connor. <laughs> yeah, whatever.
0: Go back and listen. I have to get going, guys. This is a another gold episode, man. This is going to be an instant classic. Hmm. Well, I'm glad that you you kind of brought us back to that. Yeah, that's good.
2: That's intensity, guys.
1: Yeah. That it is. What if we didn't record it? Be lost. Remember when we did that? Like one of the great episodes, right? One of the great episodes that's been lost to history.
0: Yeah. You said know. it was like tears and rain. I wish I got from Blade Runner. Mm, that's what the robot says before he dies. Circle.
1: Yep. Man. Mm. <laughs> All right. Later gamers. I would love to watch Blade Runner with Peter Craft. <laughs> I bet you he would like it. I, I bet so. Yeah. Right, Please
2: follow Three Dogs
1: North on Instagram. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisc, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode. Are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary, it may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good
2: girl.